0: Good evening. My name is Elizabeth Glenn. I'm with the Baltimore County Department of Planning and I'm also with the Baltimore County um, sorry with the Baltimore Regional Fair Housing Group and a member of the steering committee of the Sustainable Communities Initiative um, grant funded opportunity collaborative. And it is my pleasure on behalf of the Baltimore Metropolitan Council and all of our partners to welcome you to this incredible event this evening. This is really an opportunity that has come about through an unprecedented and historic collaborative effort. And you are a part of one of the first major events that we are kicking off. This evening has come about through probably, really two years of effort. The event tonight, which we are very pleased to have such an august body um, on our panel and and a local, basically, celebrity who will have a, lead a discussion about segregation and race in our metropolitan area. But most importantly, we're opening up a discussion amongst people of great principle and great passion around social equity, housing, and economic empowerment. To get the evening started, I'd first like to make some acknowledgments because I think without these folks and their participation and their commitment and their professionalism and their expertise, we would not be in this room right now in this event with this collective gathering here. Um, I want to recognize, first of all, um, we have some elected officials in the room, and I first want to acknowledge that Annapolis Mayor Josh Cohen is here, and we are really appreciative of him being here. Not only is um, he is a supporter, but he is also the co-chair of our committee, and he has been an, an incredible leader in this process, and we really thank him for that. And I also like to acknowledge Delegate Sandy Rosenberg, who we all know has been a friend of housing and fairness and equity in our, in our state for a long time. And we appreciate his presence here tonight. We have a lot of other friends and it would not be fair for me to try to recognize everyone, but there are some folks I think bear mentioning and, and acknowledging and, and ask you to please um, appropriately uh, recognize them as well. And, and I first want to recognize um, the regional fair housing group. This is a group of people that have come together together over the last several years to promote fair housing and equity and to undertake conducting an analysis of impediments to fair housing choice in this region. And so I, I want to acknowledge, first of all, Amy Wilkinson, who's the Associate Executive Director of Fair Housing and Equal Opportunity Enforcement for the Baltimore Housing Authority. Kathy Koch, who's the Director the executive director of the Arundel Community Development Services and she wears other hats as well. Um, Erin Karpowitz, Erin is a projects planner for Arundel Community Development Services and she's also a board member of ABCD Network and she has been an integral member of this group. Um, Tiffany Smith, I'm not sure if Tiffany's here, but Tiffany is chief of staff for Howard County Housing. Mary Campbell, who's the director and compliance officer of Howard County Human Relations. And I don't see her, but Sylvia Bryant, um, who is the director of Harford County Human Relations, this is a group of people have, who have really pushed to create and conduct an analysis of impediments that was probably one of the most uh, comprehensive analysis that had been done um, in our region. Um, I also want to acknowledge the efforts of the Baltimore Metrop- Metropolitan Council, because without them and their efforts to bring us all together, and to submit an application on our region's behalf. We also, again, wouldn't be having this conversation. So I want to acknowledge Mike Kelly, who's General Counsel and Government Relations for for Baltimore Metropolitan Council. (laughs) Hi, Mike. Um, I also want to uh, acknowledge the role of Citizens Planning and Housing Association as one of the sponsors tonight, but also a a regional leader in in, uh, housing issues. And Mel Freeman, Thank him for his work and all that he's done to move this process along. Um, Again, acknowledging Maryland ABCD Network and the work that they've done in terms of marketing and outreach and keeping these issues that are of great importance around housing equity in front of us and keeping a a vigilant, I use this word because this is important, a vigilant eye on ensuring housing equity in our region. Um, I'm going to make a special thanks to the Pratt Library Um, for hosting us this evening and giving us this space. And then um, I want to talk a little bit about the Opportunity Collaborative because that is the new name that we've unveiled for this unprecedented effort. When I say unprecedented, to bring together the group of government partners, private nonprofit partners and institutional partners in a very complicated, effort to create a regional plan for sustainable development for our region has been been an extraordinary undertaking. And while we have had this, um, we have been working together for this past year, we are looking forward to the remainder of this grant term, which is another couple of years, but the impact that our work will have will be long reaching, far reaching, and we (coughs) hopefully will take us through the middle of the century. Um, The the program includes funds, um, by the way, we were awarded $3.5 million to develop this plan, and those funds include um, um, uh, programming to develop a regional plan for sustainable development as well as the development of a fair housing action plan and an implementation strategy that has a strong emphasis, a strong emphasis, and at the core of what we're working on, is to reduce economic and racial disparity in our region. We had a formal kickoff planned for October, but um, it was derailed by um, s- Tropical Storm Sandy, and, and I have to ex- uh, um, say that I was um, quite disappointed that the, the kickoff was, um, had to be rescheduled, but not so disappointed as I was in Nashville at the time. And so um, in a way it was um, provident but not so provident that the event's being rescheduled for March and will be firmly out of hurricane and tropical storm season by then. Um, my last assignment, because really I'm just trying to get things started, get you a little warmed up, <coughs> get you thinking about what's gonna happen, but my last assignment this evening, and I'm gonna sit down and, and join you uh, in listening into this what I hope to be a very robust discussion is to introduce Carol Payne, who's going to be our moderator this evening. And Carol, as most of you know, is the director of the Baltimore HUD Field Office. And she is a remarkable leader. And I I have to tell you, as she is one of the most unorthodox directors of of HUD's field offices, and I say that because her background is such that she brings a perspective of health and healing to housing and revitalization. She is the um, Region 3 Sustainability Officer in the Office of Sustainable Housing and Communities. And she has um, had um, opportunities and positions in nursing administration and in research that looked at healthy outcomes. She has a distinguished career. She has won a number of awards. And she has been a remarkable influence on HUD field policy in our local area. She has been a leader, still is, a mother, a daughter, a sister, and a friend. I give you Carol Payne.
1: Good evening, everyone. Good evening. How thrilling it is to be here this evening uh, for this discussion. Um, I want to just follow up on something that, two things that Liz shared. One, indeed, I am a nurse working in housing and uh, it has brought with it some challenges because when you're with a housing group and you start talking about health as David Casey, my colleague uh, over there knows, people look at you strangely so to find myself leading the Baltimore HUD office is both thrilling and challenging and so I am delighted today to moderate this session around fair housing which connects everything that we do whether it is multifamily housing, community development, public housing, all of it is connected by fair housing and we only need to look around Baltimore City to understand the unique importance and perspective of place, whether it is your community or whether it is the housing and where it is located. So I'm delighted this evening that we will hear from three experts uh, around this issue and what it has meant historically and how that history plays out yet today. And before I go any further, there are three people in the audience that I must tell you, they are here and they are my children. Uh, They are right there. Uh, That is Lauren, Elizabeth, Marcus (laughs) and Tishon. It is so important for us to pass on the work and the message. And so I am thrilled that they are here today. Just a lot of thank yous for everyone who is a part of making this happen, but especially the sustainability grantee of the Baltimore Metropolitan Council. I can't tell you how thrilled I was to be a part of presenting the check to them and having the conversation yet again around fair housing and what that means for HUD, but more importantly, what does it mean for the region of metropolitan Baltimore so please give them a shout out for writing a great application uh, to bring the money to Baltimore special thanks to everyone that I know in this audience you have all been friends and uh, continue to be so our agenda for tonight is to hear from the panelists I'm going to introduce them to you through their bios uh one behind the other and then we will begin our conversation framed by a question with uh antero pieta so let me begin antero is a native of finland who came to the united states in 1964 the summer of lyndon b johnson's reelection campaign civil rights strife and the new new york world's fair The thing that I am so excited about, Antero, is his work in Baltimore as a reporter and if you have not read his engaging, thought-provoking book, Not in My Neighborhood, Don't Leave Without It. Uh, After Stint's reporting in Johannesburg and Moscow, he spent a decade on the Baltimore Sun's editorial board before retiring, so please give him a round of applause. Robert Strump began this past summer as the new Executive Director of Baltimore Neighborhoods Incorporated, a great partner for HUD, an organization that has promoted racially integrated neighborhoods since its founding in 1959. Before joining BNI, Rob was manager of systemic investigations at the National Reinvestment Coalition where he promoted policies to foster inclusive communities, prevent housing discrimination, and strengthen the enforcement of fair housing and consumer protection laws. Before that, Rob was the director of research and policy at the Community Law Center, where he worked to combat predatory and deceptive real estate practices. Round of applause for Rob, please. And my colleague at the Housing Authority of Baltimore City, Amy Wilkerson, is the executive Associate Executive Director for Fair Housing and Equal Opportunity Enforcement for Baltimore Housing, a position she has held since 2001. And in that position, Amy oversees fair housing for both the Housing Authority and the Baltimore City Department of Housing and Community Development. Before coming to the city, Amy served as General Deputy Assistant Secretary for Fair Housing, Equal Opportunity at the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development during the Clinton administration. Please, a round of applause for Amy. We are excited to begin Entero this conversation and i'm going to start with uh just a simple question please tell us a bit about the history behind the 1937 federal homeowners loan corporation redlining map explained in your book and are there ways we are still living this legacy and i know that you are going to frame your conversation also around how the federal government uh, was a bear, barrier during that era.
2: Okay. Well, thank you so much. Uh, what I want to do is to establish a baseline because, as uh, Ms. Payne said, before the federal government uh, became a participant, a partner in promoting fair housing, the federal government was the biggest hindrance to fair housing. And uh, there's lots of history, and much of the history is in my book, but the turning, there are a couple, couple of uh, landmark uh, dates that I want to run through here. Uh, one, one date is 1910, when Baltimore becomes the first American city where the city council uh, passes an ordinance that requires that each residential block be segregated. Uh, the next year is 1913, uh, when Roland Park Company, which in 1910, just before the city council action, had decided that uh, Negroes would be excluded from residence, uh, residency in, in Roland Park, and each homeowner had to sign a document saying that they would not sell to Negroes In 1913, the the Roland Park Company, the leading developer here in those days, went one step further. A company policy was established, no Jews in Roland Park. Uh, There were about half a dozen Jewish families in Roland Park in 1913. uh, When they vacated their houses, they no longer could sell to Jewish people. And for the next 50 years or so, there were no Jewish homeowners in Roland Park. The next uh, turning point comes, it's a nationwide turning point, and it comes in 1935 37. Uh, that's when, in the death of the uh, Great Depression, the federal government's bailout agency, Homeowners Loan Corporation, started uh, a very ambitious exercise. It uh, decided to map 239 American cities, including Baltimore, uh, and present a cartographic uh, document that that in each of those cities identified neighborhoods that were seen as safe for lending and neighborhoods that were seen as as risky for lending. Uh, In Baltimore and in other uh, cities, uh, The way it was done was that a task force of real estate people was assembled uh, and then there were a couple of uh, federal housing, uh, federal banking officials, uh, and an economics, male economics professor from Goucher, which in those days was a uh, girl's school, and they were given uh, a city map and four crayons, and they were told, paint the city, and that's what they did. Using four colors, they uh, uh, divided the city into areas where uh, banks uh, were told that, that loans could be made uh, safely if they were satisfied with, with the applicant's uh, background. And, and those colors were green, which was the top color and blue, which was the next uh, best color. And what was uh, common to both of those areas was that housing stock was new, uh, contemporary, and that that uh, those neighborhoods had pr- restrictive covenants that barred blacks and Jews from residence. And so uh, it's kind of interesting how how big this this uh, uh, recentness of housing was in federal thinking in those days, because uh, Roland Park, where houses now were about 40 years old, the oldest ones, was seen as having passed its peak, and the federal government said, you cannot get the top rating, you get the second best rating, because the thinking was that in those days, uh, houses had a certain life expectancy, and Roland Park houses had kind of exceeded their life expectancy. It's, and and then, then we had two, two other uh, colors that were used for other neighborhoods, and those were yellow, which was uh, basically used to denote neighborhoods that were in transition, and then there were uh, neighborhoods that were redlined. Uh, painted red, and those were neighborhoods in both of those co- co- color categories, where housing stock was not that recent, where there were no restrictive covenants against inharmonious elements, as the federal one of the federal terms uh, uh, was, and 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 where the federal government said, told the banks and lenders in general that. Uh, it is not impossible to make good loans in these areas, but those loans have to be made on a basis uh, and, and criteria different from those used in the uh, top two categories. And this, in 1937, is the moment when the federal government gives its stamp of approval for a two tier lending system, a lending system that uh, existed before that date but has since persisted and a lending system that that in recent memory uh, brought to us uh, the the, um, uh, subprime mortgage uh, crisis and the practices which, according to studies, seem to indicate that that, uh, certain uh, people, certain races, had a better chance of getting conventional loans at the best terms and that that many of the minorities, even if if they were in better uh, financial situation than some of the white applicants, that they were ushered to to loans that that had um, stricter terms and higher interest rates. So, uh, all of this is connected with a phenomenon that was uh, current in the United States in those days, uh, and that was the uh, philosophy of uh, eugenics, where it was believed that uh, human uh, races had different and, and nationalities had different births, and so so. Uh, it's kind of interesting that when the redlining uh, exercise was done, uh, Homer Hoyt, who was the chief economist at the Federal Housing Administration and, and participated in this, he then also developed a, uh, a pyramid system that was, uh, was uh, used in many appraising handbooks for decades after that, uh, from the 1930s until the 1960s, that basically contained the following information for the use of the real estate trade and and lenders. Uh, According to Homer Hoyt, one of the founders of the Urban Land Institute, uh, these were the uh, nationalities in the order of preference in real estate he said that number one were english german scots irish and scandinavians number two north italians number three bohemians <laughs> or czechoslovakians number four poles number five lithuanians number six greeks number seven and these are his words russian jews or the lower class number eight South Italians, number nine, Negroes, number 10, Mexicans. Hoyt, Hoyt allowed that many whites on the lower rungs could become less objectionable once they, quote, conformed to the American standard of living, unquote. Blacks and Mexicans, on the other hand, he said, had no chance of overcoming, quote, the opinion or prejudice of the real estate market, even though, he said, such bigotry quote, may have no reasonable basis. This was just the way real estate operated, he wrote, quote, if the entrance of a colored family into a white neighborhood causes a general exodus of white people, such dislikes are reflected in property values. So, these are the ideas that then formulate federal housing policies uh, the homeowner's loan corporation uh, uh, soon goes out of business and its, its portfolio is inherited mainly by FHA and, and, and many of the FHA policies until the 1960s reflected this thinking that was crystallized in redlining and Homer Hoyt. Uh, the next turning point, the first real turning point in bringing the federal government into the ranks of fair housing activists comes in 1948 when uh, there is a Supreme uh, Court challenge of uh, restrictive, racially um, restrictive covenants. And Harry Truman uh, decided to to, uh, involve the government on the side of those who wanted to rid the nation of uh, restrictive covenants, which by that time had been – become the chief instrument for enforcing uh, bigotry. And Henry Truman said in a booklet that was prepared for that case, quote, we must make the federal government a friendly, vigilant defender of the rights and equ- equalities of all uh, Americans. Our national government must show the way, and these were the president's words. So, so uh, you can then imagine what happens after 1948. Uh, uh, this is now the uh, time of great upheaval. The, uh, the war has ended. Uh, suburbanization is starting at a at uh, fast clip. And, and so six years later, the Supreme Court uh, rules on school desegregation uh, which then uh, really uh, kicks off the transition racial transition of American cities and neighborhoods um, and 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 in that uh, context uh, the Supreme Court's 1948 decision was important that while restricting covenants as agreements, private agreements, were totally legal that they could no longer be enforced by courts. So this, in brief, is how we got here, and I thank you very much.
1: And Taro, I have a follow-up question. Given the perspective that you laid out for us, uh, from a historical perspective, what is the relevance of the Fair Housing Act for people and local governments today?
2: I really am not that uh, much of an expert on this question. Let me just uh, say something that that again brings us back to the history. Uh, and 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 when when I talk about. Uh, the situation in Baltimore City in the 1940s, just before the, the, uh, the Shelley versus Kramer, uh, decision, uh, on, on, uh, restrictive covenants. Uh, Baltimore's small fair housing community was very divided for a couple of reasons. There were racial divisions, not only uh, between black and and white, but also between black and Jews. Uh, There was also, uh, and, 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 and all this really went back to a central disagreement as to what fair housing should be, what the pace should be, who should be players, and I think that when we look at the situation that that, uh, obtains today, particularly in light of the uh, Thompson versus HUD case, we see that some of these same questions are still undetermined, unanswered.
1: Good point. Rob, I'm going to ask you to uh, comment about the maps that you uh, referenced earlier
3: to me. Thank you. First of all, let right. me just say I am just truly honored and, and, and in awe of, to be up here with all the experts and to be next to Intero here. This, I, many of you who know me know I'm a news junkie and I do a lot of reading, but I could not put this book down. If you have not read this book, uh, I really urge you to pick one up today uh, for yourselves and uh, and make it a gift for the holidays, what have you, because it is just phenomenal. The, the book... I'm sorry, the map that, uh Intero was speaking of a few moments ago from 1934, 1935, is this map here on your far left in the corner, uh, and you can see the colors, uh, and that is, of course, is the genesis of the term redlining that we all live with today. Uh, to answer part of the second part of your question about the relevancy of that today, the map on your far right over here in the corner is the vestiges of what that was all about because you can still see where we how Baltimore city and the region is segregated. It may not be by law, but it is de facto a very we are in a very segregated region. And so the relevancy of what happened and what is outlined uh, in this wonderful book is truly the way we live today. Uh, and, uh, and and in some of the practices and almost condonation of the way we live today, and we see we saw that in, in for example, the lending side of things, like where you re- referenced the subprime lending, uh, the whole lawsuit that Baltimore City brought uh, against uh, financial institutions for fair housing violations for preying upon protected classes in terms of the reverse redlining. Rather than saying we're not going to lend to you, they were t- people were targeted for uh, toxic uh, subprime products. Uh, today, uh, if any of you uh, read the um, Baltimore Sun, there's an op-ed from uh, one of my colleagues at the Maryland Consumer Rights Coalition about the Attorney General settlements uh, that uh, is affecting all of the uh, states and the five largest banks in this country. The problem with the settlement, among many, is that the information that the state, that the lenders are obligated to provide as to what they're doing is aggregated by state. So all Bank X has to do is say, we did so many millions of dollars of principal reduction in the state of Maryland. But we have no idea where that went, whether it was in Roland Park or whether it was in Patterson Park. We don't know. So how, without de-aggregating that information to at least a zip code level, No one knows whether fair housing and discrimination are playing a part in the outcomes of the Attorney General Settlement. So this history is very relevant to today.
1: I'd like to just make a couple of comments around um, the relevance for today. When we think about young people, children, Uh, and how communities must nurture our children to be the best that they can be. We can clearly look across Baltimore City, and for me right now that's my relevance because that's where I live, and we can see the difference in school, school attainment, uh, the number of children who are going beyond the ninth grade, going beyond 12th grade, into post-secondary education, uh, we know that the prediction in terms of life opportunity is nailed by your zip code. And so the relevance becomes very important when we are talking about school funding. Uh, We just read about the number of schools that are potentially going to close uh, in Baltimore City who's going to argue for those schools as we think about where people live and their access uh, to a quality education for their children. Health indicators, Uh, if you look at the health profiles across the city prepared by the health department, where you live matters, I believe Druid Heights has the lowest life expectancy it is about 63 years and taro talked about roland park it is 83 years so when we talk about fair housing it is vital that we put a face uh, on that fair housing question and so uh, i see fair housing very much around opportunity and those issues of sustainable housing and sustainable communities. And much work to be done in Baltimore City and the surrounding communities. Having said that, Amy, uh, what I'd like to uh, frame around a question for you. Uh, it has now been more than 40 years since the passage of the night, in 1968 of the Fair Housing Act, which banned a lot of commonly practiced. 20th century discrimination in housing. Many people may now feel that families and individuals are basically free to live where they want to live and that these residential patterns are now just the result of individual choice. Again, to you, what is the relevance of the Fair Housing Act for people and local governments today? and if you could share what our local governments in, ba- in the Baltimore area are doing today and why. Thank you.
4: Good evening, everyone. Um, the uh, Fair Housing Act is obviously very relevant uh, to us today. It's, um, you know, the, the, the real premise of the Fair Housing Act is to give people choice, fair housing choice, to live in whatever community they want to live in, regardless of their race, religion, <coughs> gender, disability status, familial status, um, and I may be leaving some other things out. But uh, so, as local jurisdictions, uh, you know, our our goal is to ins- to make sure that the Fair Housing Act uh, is being followed and being enforced. Um, the um, Baltimore City as Liz indicated, uh, worked with Baltimore County, Anne Arundel County, Harford County, and Howard County. Uh, uh, We collaborated to uh, create and to complete an analysis of impediments to fair housing, which we are required to do because each of us receives certain federal funds. And as recipients of these funds, uh, we have to not only um, explain how we're going to spend the funds, but we have to do this analysis. We are not required to do the analysis um, on a regional basis, but uh, actually we are probably uh, one of the first regions to have done a regional analysis of impediments first back in 1996, and then again, uh, we just completed one in uh, 2012. In 20, uh, well, we started this process probably back in 2009 or 2010 when we uh, hired a consultant to perform the analysis of impediments for us, and we decided it was important to not only look uh, at each of our uh, jurisdiction at each jurisdiction's uh, impediments to fair housing, but to look at impediments to fair housing on a regional basis because in today's world, people you know live in one place, work in another, um, uh, and so it's we are a, a region, and the the boundaries really don't make sense. It doesn't. Makes sense to uh, just look at Baltimore City when we know so many people who work in Baltimore City live in other jurisdictions, and it and it doesn't make sense to ignore the fact that people who live in those uh, who live in various jurisdictions may have opportunities that people who live in other jurisdictions don't. Um, We also actually have a history of collaborating um, in other areas. For example, we worked together in 2006. To uh, put on a symposium on the importance of homeowners insurance in the context of fair housing, and we also work together with HUD and and Baltimore Neighborhoods Inc. Uh, to put on a um, a conference, a half-day conference to celebrate the 40th anniversary of the Fair Housing Act. So, in in hiring a consultant to do the analysis of impediments to fair housing, um, we. Uh, had the consultant look at a number of, of factors uh, including the demographics of our region, census data, housing patterns, um, both uh, subsidized housing and privately owned housing, rental housing, home ownership, uh, accessible housing, housing for persons with disabilities who don't have mobility issues um, and we uh, and, the, and the consultant created for us a very comprehensive um, analysis of impediments uh, for each jurisdiction and then for the region. Um, Some of the action steps that were set forth in the plan include uh, preserving and expanding affordable housing in high opportunity areas, um, education events on fair housing uh, issues such as this one, expanding access to accessible and affordable housing, Uh, Working to improve transportation in high opportunity areas, um, advocating for a statewide prohibition um, uh, against discrimination against persons based on their source of income, uh, specifically persons who uh, are pay for their housing using a voucher. Um, Helping people helping to uh, streamline uh, our voucher. procedures among the various jurisdictions to make it easier for persons who have a voucher to move to another jurisdiction within the Baltimore region, um, and continuing uh, to improve coordination among our various jurisdictions on fair housing issues. We held a public hearing in January on the draft analysis of impediments, which we actually call an AI. Uh, We've received a number of comments from Members of uh, the community, and um, and the consultant took those comments and considered them. And uh, it was sort of fortuitous that as we were sort of completing the AI process, um, the the uh, we were also the Baltimore uh, Baltimore Metropolitan uh, Council was working with um, a group of government. Uh, and nonprofit entities to um, submit an application to HUD for a sustainable communities initiative grant, and so we took advantage of that opportunity to seek funding for somebody to, co- to help us to help the region uh, coordinate uh, the implementation plan for the uh, action steps for the regional AI and uh, we um, you know, we felt it was important to have such a person in place because each of our, uh, each of us who are representing our jurisdictions have a lot of other responsibilities, and we felt it was important to have one person who could focus on uh, the implementation of the action steps. And we also thought we would take uh, advantage of the opportunity to seek funds through the Sustainable Communities Initiative because each of our jurisdictions has experienced. Um, a reduction, a significant reduction in funds, uh, particularly our community development block grant funds, which would be a prime source for paying for this uh, person. Um, and so since we had this opportunity, we took advantage of it, and fortunately we were successful. We uh, were not able to get the full funding that we sought, and so each of us felt so that it was really important to be able to attract uh, an experienced professional into this position, So we each of the jurisdictions (coughs) contributed additional funds uh, to be able to um, make the position attractive to uh, an experienced professional. And uh, that resulted in our hiring uh, Dan Pontius, who has helped us organize uh, tonight's event and um, has really uh, hit the ground running in terms of helping us to uh, implement um, to develop an implementation plan and to implement our action steps um, one of the uh, one, one uh, factor one uh, bit of feedback that we received during the hearing was uh, that some some felt that the um, action steps um, didn't include measurable outcomes and, and specific time frames and um, so we decided to hold a series of focus groups to get additional feedback to help us of uh, Develop some measurable outcomes and and timeframes, and and um, Dan organized those focus groups. I think they were very successful and very informative, and we did really get some very um, great ideas in, that we are using as we develop our implementation plan. Uh, some of the other uh, um, action steps that Dan has taken is um, he helped us submit comments to the state. Community Development Administration on the Qualified Allocation Plan, which is the plan that the state, uh, that basically governs uh, low-income housing tax credits and how they're awarded. Um, He um, uh, also has, we have scheduled a meeting with area public housing authorities to talk about uh, how we can streamline our reporting process, which again is the uh, process uh, by which a person who's received a voucher, say in Baltimore City, would move, take their voucher and move to another jurisdiction uh, because we received some feedback that people felt that the procedures are, are complicated and make it difficult for people to move. <laughs> and he, he's also, we'll also be discussing other strategies uh, that we might take to help preserve the supply of affordable housing here in the Baltimore region. Um, we're taking steps to partner with uh, local nonprofit entities uh, to apply for federal fair housing. Um, and, to apply to the uh, Federal Housing Initiative Program uh, for funds to conduct education and outreach and enforcement activities, uh, principally uh, testing uh, to see, to determine if um, the Fair Housing Act is being violated uh, by landlords and perhaps um, lenders. And uh, we're also exploring uh, the best tools that may be used by landlords to identify um, accessible features they may have in their rental properties and to make it easy for uh, people who are looking for, people who have mobility uh, disabilities, uh, who are looking for units with accessible features or units that are completely accessible, making it easy for them to find that information. Um, and we're also working uh, with the, what is now called the Opportunity Collaborative, formerly this um, Sustainable Community Initiative, Housing Committee, uh, which is funding a housing study to identify areas of opportunities for housing, transportation, and workforce opportunities. So um, I think I can safely say that um, uh, Anne Arundel County, Baltimore County, Harford County, Howard County, and Baltimore City are all very excited to be working together uh, to promote fair housing and to implement the action steps um, as set forth in our analysis of impediments to fair housing.
1: Great. Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing on this side of the conversation. It is now about 20 minutes after 7 and it is your opportunity now to engage in the conversation. We're going to have a question and answer period and I'm looking for mics. Um. Great, okay, Uh, the only comment that I would make before we start is that a couple of areas for me at HUD is to just congratulate the group on the regional AI, Uh, their work is extraordinary. So on behalf of HUD, please give them a round of applause. We are all very much aware uh, of some of the history that has made it very difficult. And so to bring the areas, the county execs, their staffs together to really talk about how do we affirmatively further fair housing is just a major accomplishment for the Baltimore metropolitan area. Two areas that I am very concerned about is affordable housing for families. Uh, Very, very, very much on my mind, again, as we think about children and what it means in terms of housing and sustainable communities. And then providing fair housing access for the gay, lesbian, trans and transgender and bisexual community. We now have uh, a rule, but we really need to take an active look uh, at how we make sure that fair housing truly is inclusive. So those are two priorities for me at the Baltimore field office. So now we will begin the questions, and I hope my eyes are good enough to see you so that I can See your hands. The floor is yours.
3: Maybe have people stand.
1: Yes, if you stand, that would help me. Thank you. And in the back, you will be second. With the mic. I had a question for Antero. Um, I didn't realize until he said it that the uh, concept of eugenics was still alive and well in 1937.
5: Uh, As I recall, it had a uh, level of strong academic support on a lot of
1: well-known campuses and a lot of writers who one would think would have known better.
5: Uh, And could you comment on that and also comment on um, whether that is sort of the yin and yang
2: of social Darwinism? Well, that's an interesting... That's an interesting question, and uh, let me uh, contemporize it a little bit more. Uh, In my mind, and uh, I'm going to make a partisan statement, political, well, it's not a partisan statement, but I'm going to make a political statement. Uh, I think that one of the reasons why the past presidential election was so ferocious as it was was that this was really the last hurrah of uh, eugenics? I mean, there are lots of people who, who who do not like the president and do not like what's going on in this country, uh, largely for the reasons that that uh, can be understood in light of eugenics—that there were uh, which which preached that that the ruling class were Anglo-Saxons and so on. Um, And so, uh, let me just make the other uh, remark also, that as a foreigner uh, coming from Finland, uh, when I looked at the presidential campaign, it was difficult for me to uh, figure out what these issues were all about, and this was also evident in the healthcare discussion. Uh, we were not talking about health care. We were talking about states' rights and, and all issues that, that, that went into this picture that I, I, I uh, painted about the 1930s. And so anybody who wants to read more, there is more in the book. But, but uh, we are truly, truly, um, uh, we have this very complicated heritage and, and, and lots of emotions, and, and that's all I can say about that. Please. if you are
1: queuing for a question if you would make your way to the line okay
6: sure thank you Um, my question actually I want to return to the question that you raised Carol Um, and that is that you know I repeatedly hear this perception that you know basically poor folks want to live with other poor people Um, people of one race want to live next to people of the same race and that any attempt that we make to kind of change that natural pattern is somehow social engineering. And so, really, we should just let people live where they supposedly want to live. And so, I guess my question is, from a historical perspective, did you see that issue, that argument uh, in the research you did, and how was it addressed? And then for the panel up uh, top, how do we address that today?
2: Well, uh, in, in my book, I talk about how, how all kinds of non-housing related issues affect housing patterns. For instance, one of the most contentious decisions that was made that had a direct uh, impact on housing patterns was, was the uh, alignment for, for Metro. Uh, and, and for the same reason, the alignment for light rail has been controversial. In, in Linthicum Heights uh, this year, there was demand that a light rail station be uh, taken, taken uh, out because they did not want outsiders in the community. So, uh, and, and, and I know that Director Payne is uh, doing lots so. thinking along these lines. Uh, what, the, the transportation question I think is, is paramount in so many ways. Let me tell you, I once met a young lady, uh, an African-American um, uh, woman who, who was very typical of the uh, group of people that live in the inner city. She was poorly educated. Uh, she was... Uh, had had no job prospects until she uh, was able to get enrolled on an apprentice program with the Painters Union and everything went fine except that one day the Painters Union said, listen, now you have to attend our uh, workshops in Sykesville. Well, there was no public transportation between Baltimore and Sykesville 25 miles away. And so, she dropped out of the program and returned to do what she, the only thing that she knew how to do, which was selling drugs. So, I mean, mean, these are questions that, that uh, when we talk about housing, uh, we really quite often are not talking about housing per se.
1: I I just want to have to echo uh, Antero's comment about transportation. Uh, It is critical, so when we are talking housing and planning and sustainability, to me, it is right up at number one, because for folks trying to reach the next level of opportunity without adequate transportation, uh, it is a problem. Sometimes we rethink that proposition when it's too late. Ask the folks at Georgetown. Uh, university, every time I am there, it pains me that I can't get back into D.C. proper because the subway isn't there.
3: Just a couple points on, on, the, on that subject. First of all, yeah, this is much bigger than housing, and that's why the book is called Neighborhoods. It's about neighborhoods. It's about communities. It's not just about people living where they want to live. Um, Transportation is so vital to the ability to have sustainable, diverse communities. And, uh, Delegate Rosenberg, Annapolis is one of the few capitals on the East Coast that doesn't have any rail service. I hope someday somebody looks at that and figures out how to make a spur off of, say, BWI's light rail and send it down to Annapolis because you can't get there from here. And that's a problem. And uh, that's part of the problem just within the city, that you can't get to, or the region, where you can't get to Sykesville, or you can't get to Crownsville, or wherever it is, without having a car. And, but, to, Matt, to, to your point, for, I don't, the, we have to re- realize that the idea here is not to force feed integration, or force feed people living in different communities. It's to, it's to enable people to live where they choose to live and not to do things to thwart that. And that is what we still have a systemic difficulty with because we don't have the transportation uh, and we don't have the means of affordable housing and work uh, opportunities uh, in communities where people can easily get there. Uh, and so, to, yes, there are always going to be people who want to live in the neighborhood they grew up in, whose you know, mother and father and sister and aunt live there, and they may be the backup for what they do with their children when they're in, in, after school, and so they want to live within certain communities. The idea is that they do that because they choose to, not because they have no alternatives afforded to them to do otherwise.
1: And that is about choice and about equity in our planning uh, process, because we do know someone makes those decisions. And so, it is about the equity in this
7: conversation. Thank you. Well, equity matters and place matters. Uh, I'm <laughs> Michael Scott from equity matters and place matters. <laughs> um, but I was going to ask a question, but I think I'll make a comment and have you guys respond, especially in light of the last question. Um, you know, our report that just came out on health outcomes in Baltimore was r- largely based on, on, on Interil's, uh work uh, and really interrogating what, uh, the current health outcomes are based on, you know, systemic racism, back in, and redlining. Um, and I think this last question really highlights the need for big data and community voice, because I, th- I think some of those questions have been interrogated pretty thoroughly at, at the national level. At least, at least uh, the Black Think Tank that we're part of in 23 other cities has looked at some of that. And when you when you pick it apart, that's really not the case. That folks. If they, if they have a choice, want to live in poverty, right? I mean, we've, we've studied that to death, but what's missing is, is, is the voice of the people outside of the academic institutions and outside of the, um, the, the fine work that we have here in Baltimore taking root. Can you speak to the voice of the people and how that will help drive policy change that I think is, is catching hold here?
8: I don't
3: don't know where to begin. I mean, that's such a, a, I I, I really don't. I I mean, it it is, you're almost leaving me speechless on this one, because it's so complex that there's there's no one solution. Uh, And I think, but I, I, if I'm off subject, I apologize. But I, I think to get there, we have to have not the, We have to depoliticize, I'll talk politics, you didn't want to, Uh, depoliticize the region so that we were really looking at things collaboratively and you spoke about collaboration. And uh, I'll I'll plug the ABCD since they're a co-sponsor tonight. I was really honored a few years ago to receive an award from ABCD when I was at the Community Law Center for um, sparking collaboration on housing issues. Uh, and I think that's really the answer here. Is we we have we have to get all the jurisdictions in the region together to to come up uh, with solutions, not isolated uh, patchwork uh, addressing not only housing, affordable housing, but the work, uh, employment opportunities, uh, and and the transportation and the education, right. all in one setting, all in one project, and not have, well, we'll do this now, and we'll do that when we're done, because it w- it's too late, and, and we've messed something up. Uh, and I know I'm not really answering the question, but uh, I, I don't, I mean, as a single answer, I don't really have one. I just think we have to look at this in a really big picture, both in terms of the issues as well as the geography.
4: And, and I think that actually that's that's the goal of the Opportunity Collaborative. I mean, that's, that's the whole point of the move that housing committee, a transportation committee, workforce committee, and they you know, we have uh, um, the ability to, to find out what each committee is doing and to, to collaborate among the committees. And again, you know, the, the regions are collaborating through this analysis of impediments and the implementation of our action plan. We started off with our focus groups to get more input from members of the community. Um, so I think, you know, we are trying mm-hmm. to give voice to the people in our community.
1: I think community engagement is critical to this conversation and we're raising the awareness and the education across the communities, across systems, and how it affects different systems and the goals that we are uh, trying to reach. A couple of weeks ago, Mel Freeman, no, a week ago, I think Mel, uh, CPHA focused on the red line and the conversations that need to be going on and must continue to go on when we center uh, the issue of housing communities and transportation, workforce, education, all of them as priorities.
9: I, uh, I thank you so much for putting this on. I really loved uh, the, the book, Not, Not in My Neighborhood. It is a real page-turner. Um, I wanted to ask a question about uh, the uh, impediments analysis, um, it seemed like the, uh, the goals that were outlined from the analysis are really laudable goals and really do get to the crux of the matter. But I'm interested in how the different collaborating counties and jurisdictions are working to implement them. Um, in particular, uh, my organization, the uh, Healthcare for the Homeless in Baltimore where I work and uh, a bunch of community members have been pushing for a long time about the source of income um work and um, I'm just wondering where those counties are at and how they how they're trying to use their leverage and how community members that are allied in that fight might be able to help
4: well um, as, as a, we've indicated in the AI it is an action step uh, that we're undertaking I think uh, you know we've had some in the last few years there have been uh, there's been collaboration, uh, with, among members of the various um, <coughs> jurisdictions, sorry about that, um, uh, to get a, a law passed to prohibit discrimination based on source of income. Unfortunately, those efforts haven't been successful. So I think this year we're sort of stepping back and, and looking at perhaps other ways to address this issue, um, perhaps um, having more dialogue with uh, those uh, uh, organizations and individuals who are opposed to the uh, passage of this law, um, maybe having some discussion uh, from those jurisdictions that have already passed the law, uh, in terms of you know what the impact has been, um, maybe to help you know I think overall communication is is important to help people to help uh, uh, put to rest unfounded fears and to educate people. Um, And so I think, you know, we've tried one, one approach for a couple of years. And we've made a lot of progress, but we just haven't crossed the finish line yet. And so we're gonna (coughs) sort of regroup and figure out if there's (coughs) some different steps we can take to be successful in getting that law passed.
1: Any other comments
4: before?
3: Okay. Hi, my question's for, uh, and Terrell, um, at University of Baltimore this semester, in our history of Baltimore class, we used your book and had a lot of lively discussions around it. Um, and so I just wanted to ask, what do you really feel is the crux of the book? Um, what I got from it was, you know, we learned the history of what happened and why it happened. Do you feel that you, this book will have a positive effect on fair housing, on neighborhoods, just on, in the community? Baltimore City in
10: general.
2: Well, uh, I don't know what the impact of this book is going to be on on uh, fair housing, but uh, it is. uh, I I hope it is going to have a a uh, a healthy impact in bringing certain things on the table that some people have talked about, but but has never really been. Uh, uh, systematically uh, documented before, and and so the the book contains all kinds of explosive material. And the beauty of the book is that it's not me arguing that this is what happened. This is what Joe says that that happened, but all 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 of this is grounded in documentation. And so so again, I mean, this is this is really a baseline, and so. Um, uh, activists like you then, then take the ball from here and run. <laughs>
6: Thank you,
3: um, uh, Can yes. I just quickly add something to that? And, and I'm I not a, a, a paid endorser uh, of this book, but I'm, I'm going to say something great about it again. The impact of this book on the future is going to be enhanced by all of you reading it, because if you do, you won't let the mistakes that were made up until now happen again and that's the value of this book uh,
1: just a, a comment before you begin uh, i think i assumed my role as field office director maybe a year and a half when i read antero's book and i spoke to deborah mcgee the director for fair housing in our office and i said oh we must bring him to the field office we can't possibly practice housing without the knowledge in this book it was that profound there were areas that were uncomfortable but uh, I think Antero will remember we uh, we had to play uh, a little dirty trick we couldn't sell the book in the HUD space not because of Ontario, it's just a, a HUD thing, federal government thing. So we moved down the hallway and put Antero in a different room and the line was growing. I was never more thrilled to be the person to bring Antero to the HUD office to really speak truth to the people who practice housing. How could I be effective if I didn't know what was in his book? Uh, I have since, Antero, tried to get it at, I call it, Big HUD in Washington. I haven't been effective yet, but I'm still working. Okay.
5: <laughs> uh, good evening. First of all, I'd like to say I, I really enjoyed reading the book. Also, uh, I grew up right smack in the middle of the area that the uh, book was talking about uh, near Druid Hill Avenue and North Avenue. The question I have is, um, this is just out to the general audience. Um, Are there any overall programs that focus on uh, rebuilding areas of Baltimore that have been torn down and areas where there are large numbers of vacant housing? Uh, Are there any programs that are focusing on Rebuilding in those areas outside of, say, the Johns Hopkins Hospital area, outside of the University of Maryland uh, biotechnical Park area, but I'm talking about the central area areas of Baltimore City, where you have large numbers of just open vacant area uh, that there doesn't seem to be any programs or initiatives to replace the housing that was torn down in those areas.
1: we have a great expert in the audience that will just be thrilled to speak to your question. His name is Commissioner Paul Graziano and he is coming now to address your comment.
6: And uh, good evening to everyone. And uh, uh, this has uh, been a great discussion. And I'm happy to shed some light on this one particular issue. But I want to commend the panel uh, for their uh, illumination on some incredibly important uh, areas here. Uh, But with respect to your specific question about are there programs and initiatives in the city uh, to deal with vacant houses and vacant uh, uh, lots, About a week and a half ago, I think it was, the mayor and I actually had a a, a major event uh, where there were participants really from all over the city who came, despite the fact it was a cold, rainy day. Uh, We were in the uh, median strip of the 1200 block of Broadway, uh, and we were celebrating the second anniversary of the mayor's Vacance to Value program, which is a six-pronged strategy to address vacant housing and vacant land in the city of Baltimore, and one of the basic principles underlying this whole effort is that we have to understand the economics and 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 the, and the sub-markets within the city. Uh, we can't uh, have one-size-fits-all strategy. We have to understand what's going on neighborhood by neighborhood. Sometimes. Block group by block group. Uh, one of the things that's very clear in Baltimore City is that uh, it is not a monolithic place where where there's uniformity uh, in, in, in any measure uh, uh, that you would have of that uh, uh, of, of those factors. Um, so, for instance, uh, we looked at uh, 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 where the vacant housing was, and we looked at the the market strength. We we did uh, an analysis with a group called the Reinvestment Fund out of Philadelphia. They worked with the city, uh, with the housing department, the planning department, uh, on something called a housing market typology, which looks at a whole series of variables that will indicate the strength of the housing markets in in, uh, block clusters. and uh, by doing that, that tells us uh, uh, what the relative strength is and what tools would be appropriate. So for the top of the market, for instance, in a Rolling Park, uh, there's not a whole lot for us to do. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a regional choice neighborhood. And so the housing department doesn't spend a whole lot of time worrying about those issues. We just try to deliver the basic city services. Uh, At the other extreme, we have places that are uh, severely blighted with uh, large amounts of abandonment uh, where we've had to undertake uh, major redevelopment efforts uh, which involve uh, significant site assembly, uh, clearance, in some cases some relocations, I think you mentioned the East Baltimore initiative area uh, there are others there are some sites that uh, we've worked with HUD on for instance where there were uh, federally insured uh, sites uh, uh, that were struggling to be kind uh, and uh, we worked with HUD to uh, to move out uh, irresponsible uh, owners and managers and to undertake uh, major redevelopment activities the Upland site uh, would be one example off of Edmondson Avenue and in the western side of the city. Um, We're also looking, continuing to look at public housing sites beyond the HOPE 6 sites. We've got a major project going on in O'Donnell Heights right now. Um, There are neighborhood uh, uh, strategies such as in Barkley in the center uh, uh, right off of uh, Greenmount Avenue, uh, where there were over 300 vacant houses that were either owned by the city, owned by the housing authority, uh, uh, some privately owned, and also there was another, again, uh, HUD-insured property that were HUDed uh, uh, foreclosed on the property. We, we bought it, we put the whole package together, and the Telesis, uh group is doing a major redevelopment project there. If you haven't been up there, I urge you to go through the Barclay area, look at all the houses that have been renovated uh, uh, along uh, the various corridors, and also infill new construction. Uh, Calvert Street, for instance, 22, 2300 block Calvert, uh, over on uh, 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 Barclay Street, uh, and so forth. Um, there are other strategies for demolition. Uh, we've, uh, the mayor just committed, actually, uh, uh, through the, uh, the Clinton Global Initiative, to address 3,000 vacant properties in the next three years, uh, including 1,500 demolitions and 1,500 renovations, uh, of, of long-term vacant properties to bring them back into alignment. Uh, there's also uh, into into occupancy. There's also a very active program with community-based groups where adopt a, adopt a lot. There, uh several hundred properties in the last year. We've actually uh, entered into agreements with community-based groups to take uh, vacant lots, sometimes vacant for years, sometimes because of the demolition work. And convert those into community gardens and so forth we're doing urban agriculture you've seen some of that written about i think in the sun um, there are just so many different dimensions because there are so many different issues um, and uh, the the bottom line is in the first two years we've seen over 800 uh, long-term vacant houses that have been renov- fully renovated uh, and or where construction is already underway We're also using some code enforcement tools that are very, very important. Um, And we have uh, close to another 800 properties that have been placed into receivership, which is a court-ordered process, or are in that pipeline to go to receivership. That's a situation where the owner has refused to take on that property. We've gone to court, got a judge to appoint a receiver, uh, and the uh, properties are auctioned off to people who will, in fact, renovate and, and reoccupy. We've seen over $45 million of private investment. That's another critical piece, Be uh, Carol, because with dwindling public resources, we need right. much more private money. So the key is how do we take our limited public resources and leverage it? We're seeing investors who are coming in and saying, I want to invest in these neighborhoods, but I want to know that the city is working with us. So if I'm going to invest in rehabbing 30 houses, I want to make sure the city takes all the property that they own and gets it back out. We've accelerated our disposition process, a six-fold increase in the number of dispositions since we started the program, um, and, and so many other dimensions. I don't want to, I don't want to um, monopolize here, but um, we have a lot of information on our website, uh, uh, www.baltimorehousing.org. Anybody who's interested could check it out there, or give us a call. Uh, we even, even have a Facebook page, but uh, uh, you can kind of uh, check in there. Uh, so there's a lot of dimensions to this, and uh, uh, we can't do it without community-based groups. We've gotten a tremendous amount of support. We can't do it without private investment. As I said, over 45 million dollars already. So we're very we're very pleased with where we're going. A lot a lot of work to do, but just yes. like the struggle we're talking about here today, and I and I would say one last thing that does directly relate to this: when you talk about um, place matters and 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 where um, uh, people live it affects their whole lives yes. profoundly and their health and so forth. Um, one dimension of choice is giving people the choice to stay where they are, but to improve the place where they are. That's so right. we're trying to break down the barriers so that. Uh, People can go anywhere they want. In fact, with a voucher, a lot of people don't know you can go anywhere in the country with a voucher, not just in the metropolitan area. But we also want people to not feel like uh, they have to get out of their neighborhood because it's a desperate situation. So we're working hard through the Vacance to Value initiative and a number of other initiatives with the health department and others. And so I think the two kind of dovetail here. Uh, Break down the barriers, open up choice but also let's improve the neighborhoods where folks are today. So before, I'll leave it at that.
1: Before you
3: leave, Commissioner. Commissioner, I, I was just wondering if you could speak for a moment to the, first of all, the, the cost of demolishing uh, home empty, vacant yeah. properties, and, and also the challenges then that result when you have a block or two which are uh, maybe 50% uninhabited, and the, uh, the, the, the challenges of providing essential services to a population that is significantly reduced.
6: Well, the cost of, of demolition is uh, about uh, $14,000 per uh, structure. If you're talking about a typical row house structure, uh, obviously economies of scale when you get a whole block of them. Uh, the, what we're finding is the biggest challenge is, is, is the housing type that we have through much of the city. Uh, we've traveled to other cities like Cleveland and Detroit where uh, they're doing a lot of demolition, but it's single-family detached houses, and it's a lot easier. You got one problem house; you, you back up the, the the bulldozer and knock it over. Uh, in a row house neighborhood, you we, we don't want to get into this gap-tooth demolition. First of all, it's very very expensive. You have to go in and put a, a rebuild the wall on both sides. That will more than triple the cost of the demolition of one unit. And uh, second. Um, we don't want to create uh, situations where there's one or two people living on a block and we've knocked everything else down. Or So we're trying to, in a very sensitive way, give those folks an opportunity, first of all, to minimize the number of relocations, but where they are, to give them the opportunity to, to better their lives. And that's where all these choice issues come in. Um, it is, um, in terms of cost, uh, it is actually much cheaper to deliver services Uh, If we can sort of consolidate uh, and and, and rebuild communities and also uh, keeping in mind the city has done an analysis that uh, every vacant house costs us at least $1,700 a year just in sort of basic maintenance issues and uh, extra policing costs, extra fire department, uh, uh, cleaning and boarding issues. So there is a real cost beyond the human costs. And, and every dollar we spend on that is a dollar less for better schools and uh, parks and all that sort of thing. Thank you. Okay. So, okay. It,
1: it so. is now about, is that ten of eight?
6: Yeah. I'm going to f- let you go. I'm sorry. Okay.
1: Good. Five of eight. Okay. The four of you are the last uh, to post questions, and we're going to move through them pretty quickly.
8: Good evening. Um, I'd like to really thank Antero for opening up this conversation, which has been long overdue. Um, You've shed a light on um, systemic institutional problems, and I I won't label them other than as problems, and every problem has a solution. And unfortunately, the solution set that um, we, as the citizens of Baltimore, would like to see has not been embraced by our decision makers and government. Um, That solution set is about bringing opportunities to our neighborhoods, bringing better transportation, bringing affordable housing, bringing those jobs that we desperately need in our communities. But instead, the investments have gone into particular portions of the city where the people who need those opportunities and jobs and affordable housing don't live. And so they're being forced to leave where they live, and as we all know, people want to stay where they live, but but the investments aren't being made there. And, and we have in this room some folks who have been systemically involved in that poor decision-making, um, I am thankful that Mr. Graziano is willing now to share information with us, um, and I think he needs to do more. I think all parts of our government need to become more transparent, because as we become more transparent, um, we, we, we can help solve some of these issues with them. Um, so my, my question to Antero is, you know, when, when you look at all of the institutions that we have, it's not just housing that has been a discriminatory problem here in the city. Um and, and we've talked about the transportation, you know. How do we get, you know, I saw Mr. Jay Brody over here from the Baltimore Development former CEO. You know, how do we get the investments that we need in our neighborhoods um, to, to bust up the institutional racism? and problems that we have, and, and, and you know, how do we get the decision makers to become more responsive to us?
2: Okay. Well, uh, Kim, thank you very much for your question. The answer is very simple, organize.
10: <laughs> <laughs> so, Mr. Piatel. Um, Maybe that's the answer to the question I was going to ask, which is, what is happening in the in the wider market so that um, segregation is not an issue, that people are not um, gathering with their own and um, resegregating, creating um, ghettos of people with higher means. Um, you know, we see simulated uh, neighborhoods like that on TV, but uh, you don't see too much of that in, in Baltimore. Um, any, uh, any suggestions on positive ways to go?
2: Well, uh, when uh, we had the foreclosures during the Great Depression, Those numbers were nothing, absolutely nothing, as compared with what we have been going through and are still going through. Uh, As a matter of fact, the remarkable thing in Baltimore and in many other cities in the 1930s was that that was the period of expanding big cities, core cities. And so during the Depression, there was no housing surplus. In Baltimore, meaning that that there was no overhang of unsold properties. Whenever properties became available through evictions, uh, foreclosure, whatever, the lenders just rented them out. There was a market for them. And so, in today's situation, we have this incredible overhang of unsold new housing and unsold. Uh, existing housing. And I don't know how this is going to uh, shake out in the end, but I, I suggest to you that in a situation that uh, the country finds itself today, uh, yes, there may be uh, tendencies that will increase segregation, but at the same time, if you are in the suburbs now in particular and you get a money offer, you are not going to look at the ethnicity of the uh, offerer too closely <laughs> or any other other uh, things, you're just going to sell. And so I think that that these are some of the uh, things that may be happening in today's America. Well, it, it will take some years to, to see how it, it's going to uh, shake out, but at the same time, uh, we are adults here and we know that race is a big uh, question in this country and, and many other things are, are uh, seen in terms of race. And prejudices exist and, and they have always existed and they always will exist. Yes, absolutely.
11: You know,
3: can I just Thank say real sir. quick, Baltimore is unique as far as cities that I know of in this respect. Fifty years ago there were a million people Maybe it's not that unique. There were a million people who lived in Baltimore City. Today, there are 600,000 people that live in Baltimore City. But the housing hasn't been torn down, so you have all that population loss, but all these vacant structures are still out there because nobody's, nothing's been done with them. Uh, and that is you where know, you're talking about the overhang. Uh, we left the overhang; it just we didn't do anything with it as people left. And you know, I think if we can find ways. Commissioner was talking about how we deal with that. Then I think that is a, is a, by a part of the solution, uh, and we just you know we have to look at that. I had a an elected official in the city. I, I don't I don't want to name her because I don't, I don't know if she'd be comfortable with my quoting her, but she made a really brilliant statement. So I she probably wouldn't mind. But what she said was, instead of trying again to be an 800,000 or a million population city, why don't we just try to be the best 600,000 populated city we can be? And, and, and you know, it was Mary Pat Clark. I'm going to stick my neck out. And I thought that was a brilliant statement. Okay? Because you all applauded. If you hadn't, I wouldn't have said it. No. Thank you. Please.
1: Thank you.
6: Thank you. Uh, I'm embarrassed that I did not know the source of the term redlining. Uh, I had no idea it was, uh, it was a government uh, program, rather than, well, rather than the work of, of um, real estate guys themselves. I'm in the midst of an email conversation with a libertarian relative of mine. I'm not a libertarian. Uh, he's going to say to me, see, the government caused that problem. Why do you expect the government to solve it? I want you to tell me what
5: I can tell him.
2: Uh, LAUGHTER well, I would, I would uh reread the chapter on eugenics, and, and I think that that's, that's the key. And, and, and uh, as, as uh, I said previously, we are now moving away from that era, uh, not only in this country, but, but in, in other countries. I mean, England is not today uh, anything like the England that it was in the 1950s or 1940s. Um, and so, so uh, uh, lots of things are happening, but these are difficult questions. Uh, the 1948 Supreme Court decision did not have any instant impact. It's, it's mm-hmm. just accumulated impact that, that dovetails with changes in people's behavior. Thank you.
11: You are the last. What such pressure to be the last person. Uh, Thanks, everyone. Uh, My question is, it's more, I guess, about accountability and responsibility for agencies. I'm just going to speak specifically for Baltimore since that's where I live and work. As we all know, you know, a lot of agencies are being in the news for mismanaging millions of dollars and, albeit, you know, housing, like lead paint, like whatever the case may be. So my, my question was, you know, I know there's, policies in place, but how are we going to hold, you know, these agencies and other organizations more accountable? And, you know, in terms of making fair housing more more fair, you know, holding landlords accountable for, like, why are we continuing to subsidize landlords who are known, infamous for have, having, like, housing quality standards or payments are getting abated? Like, what are we going to do about, like, you know, all of that <laughs> or, or, or also too you know in, in terms of making fair housing more fair like fair market rent values for Baltimore are based on bedroom size like one bedroom is a thousand dollars with all the utilities included so if I was a voucher holder and I wanted to live in Canton you know my voucher is not going to go there so you know how are we going to you know make it more more fair more equitable among the organizations I guess
1: <laughs> you would ask that question <laughs> that's exactly right and um i know this room has got recording devices but i'm just gonna go out on it that is probably the most important question for me uh as those of you who do know me i anguish every day about every check that is written to every owner whose property is not what it should be um if i had my way i would change places with baltimore and be in washington dc and try to see how i could change that i'm going to tell you that the housing lobby is strong there are tools in place they don't always work as well as paul and i would like for them to work but i want you to know from me Working hard toward a system that inspects housing to make sure that it meets housing quality standards is my number one priority, and why? Because again, I'm going back to the children. Children live there, and they should have the opportunity to live in the best housing, which should be HUD housing. That's the bottom line, children living in HUD housing should be living in the best housing. Now, I'm gonna give that back to you to say, organize, mobilize. If you live in a neighborhood where the housing is bad and you know it's HUD, if you haven't called me, then you haven't taken action. If If I don't know you because the housing is mine and it's not good housing, you're quiet. That should not be. So my invitation to you, advocates agencies individuals pick up the phone write a letter write a letter to your congressional delegation let me introduce you to a secret if i get a letter from a congressional uh individual whether it's a senator or it's a congressman i have to answer it in 15 days now i'm not going to tell you what to do with that piece of information
9: but if I don't have
1: any letters in the next two weeks, I'll know that you didn't hear me. You didn't hear me. Now, that's, that's my soapbox. Uh, Paul knows it well. Thank our panelists. Uh, just a wonderful job. Thank you. Thank you. Common themes that I heard tonight, we need the advocates, we need the CBOs, We need private funding, but most importantly, we need you and your sphere of influence because we can each make a difference. I'm going to try to make it from where I stand, but I need you. If you need an example to know why it is so important to have fair housing and that it does make a difference for Paul and I and Amy and all of those who were in the district court, when Judge Garvis approved the HUD-Thompson settlement and you heard the four ladies speak about the change in their lives and their children. One resident spoke of being profoundly depressed living in public housing, moved to a county, and I'm not sure if it was Howard, and she's no longer depressed. She is in school, she is working, and her boys completed high school and are going on to a better life. If we need any other evidence that Antero's book should help us to have a blueprint to a better Baltimore region, it was the four families. And I ask you to just go online uh, and, and look at the documents around the Thompson settlement. Uh, they're easy to find. Uh, you can certainly go to our website. I think Paul probably has some on his site. You will hear more about Thompson. But the important thing is it started with Ms. Carmen Thompson and I believe Mr. Isaacs, right, two people who said enough. So the lesson for today you have homework. If you don't have in book, you must go buy it. Second, you must read it. Three, if you see housing that is not good housing, you must call me. I'm going to give it to you. (laughs) J.C. Shea works with me and he stopped me from giving out my telephone number. So this is the main line, 410-962-2520 and we will get you to the right person uh, to manage or address which program area the housing sits in. So I invite you to call me because we are all in this together. If you want a better Baltimore, all neighborhoods must look like Canton, must look like Roland Park, they must not look like Park Heights, on the southern end, where we have a great deal of struggle. Yes.
10: Your a from okay. What your
1: is? When I receive a letter, me, it comes to me. It says, Carol Payne, field office director. And it means, Carol, you must answer. And I'm just going to pick an example. Resident A has called my office and is complaining about a property that's in a neighborhood. Yes. Or uh, I'm going to just pick Congressman Cummings. I live very near him. I get those letters every day, and I'm responsible for answering them. Yes. Yes. It is 15 days, and in my office, I try to keep the same standard. So if you, as an individual, write to me, I keep the same standard because your question is equally as important. I work for you. Remember that. I work for you. Okay? So the should be to the You can use my name. I will answer you. you. Uh, I, when you put it in writing, it means you really care about it. So do have, is Carol dot, B as in boy, dot Payne, P-A-Y-N-E, at HUD dot gov. You. You're quite welcome. Thank you so much for coming.